Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 9th, 2021. Hello to all of you, and welcome to Foreign Exchanges, the podcast. As always, it is wonderful to have you, and uh, thanks for checking out the show. If you're new to Foreign Exchanges and you like this interview, please check out the newsletter, fx.substack.com. Uh, you can sign up for our free email list and get uh, regular news and analysis of U.S. foreign policy and international affairs, as well as more podcasts like this, delivered right to your email inbox. Uh, if you are a returning Foreign Exchanges listener, then welcome back. It's uh, so nice uh, to have you, and I really appreciate uh, you continuing on with the podcast. This week, I am very pleased to welcome back to the program for her second appearance, uh, Anel Shiline of the Quincy Institute. She is a research fellow in their Middle Eastern, uh, Middle East department. Uh, regular listeners may recall, Anel was on the program a few weeks ago to talk about uh, the situation in Jordan. This was right after the uh, attempted coup or alleged attempted coup had taken place, and uh, she kind of walked us through what was going on and, and the context in which it was happening. Uh, this week, uh, she is here to talk about Yemen. Uh, Nell has just published uh, a piece at Foreign Policy called Washington Has Yemen Policy Backward. Uh, that's at least the headline that Foreign Policy put on it. Um, and, uh, she goes into some detail about uh, UN Resolution, uh, Security Council Resolution 2216, uh, which the Security Council passed uh, six years ago uh, toward the beginning of the Yemen war, they kind of laid out the uh, procedures, I guess, or the, the framework for a peace process. Uh, it is, uh, as Anel writes, it is part of the reason why there is no peace process today. Uh, the fundamental assumption of Resolution 2216, as we'll discuss with Anel here in a moment, uh, is that the Houthis are responsible for the conflict uh, and the Houthis should essentially surrender in order to get to the bargaining table as a precursor. They should give up their weapons, give up the territory they've conquered. Uh, and that's the sort of overarching framework for uh, the peace process. It is grossly inadequate to the current situation. It may have seemed like a good idea, and she'll uh, talk about that at the time, may have seemed like the right uh, sort of framework for Yemeni peace process. But uh, here we are six years later, and the Houthis have essentially won the war simply by surviving this long. Uh, and you, a, you, the UN, res UN resolution of six years ago uh, does not you know, does not apply to the situation on the ground in Yemen now. Uh, it does not recognize uh, what has transpired since then. It does not recognize the Houthi victory. Uh, and therefore, it is a pretty lousy basis for trying to entice uh, the Houthis to participate in a peace process. And so uh, Anel's going to walk us through that. I'll have a link to our article in the show description, of course. Uh, but Anel's going to walk us through uh, the UN resolution, the situation in Yemen, uh, and what a better, uh, more effective peace process or peace framework might look like. Uh, 
Uh, we'll then spend a few minutes toward the end of the interview uh, talking about some issues outside of Yemen or kind of tangentially related to Yemen. We'll talk a little bit about uh, some, I think, a little bit underhanded Saudi and uh, UAE behavior related to Yemen. They're sort of carving off little pieces of the country for their own purposes. Uh, And then we're going to talk for a few minutes about the situation in Oman. I get a lot of questions about Oman, what's happening in Oman. Um, and there has been some upheaval in Oman just recently. Uh, there were protests that broke out in a few towns and cities uh, over general economic malaise, high unemployment. Uh, of course, we know Oman is under a still fairly new sultan, uh, Sultan Haitham. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about the economic situation that Oman finds itself in, which is not good, and some of the efforts uh, that Sultan Haitham has taken to kind of uh, address its economic crisis and to uh, begin to address the over-centralization of political power in the country. Uh, so we've got a full plate. Uh, it's a full episode, and uh, but I think uh, Anel has an, an important take on the, the war in Yemen. And I also think, uh, you know, you guys will appreciate uh, hearing a little bit about what's going on in Oman, which is a fascinating country, but doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in the West. Nevertheless, an important country uh, in the region and one that, uh, again, like I said, I get a lot of questions about, so I was very happy to have uh, Anel on to ask her those questions for on your behalf. Okay, as promised in the introduction, uh, I am being joined by Anel Shaline, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute. Uh, her latest piece for foreign policy uh, is called Washington Has Yemen Policy Backwards. Uh, there'll be a link to that article in the show description. Uh, we're going to talk about Yemen, and, and maybe if we have time, we're going to do a little uh, tour of the uh, tour of the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, and see how things are going <laughs> in the in the neighborhood. Uh, but Anel, thank you so much for uh, for coming back on the program. Sure, thanks so much for having me. So let's get right to the point here. <laughs> what is uh, UN Security Council Resolution twenty two sixteen, and why is it bad? <laughs> why does it matter in terms of uh, undermining the Yemeni peace process, such as it is? Yeah. So in my piece for foreign policy, as as you mentioned, I I say that or the the title the editors chose was Washington has Yemen policy backward, and what I'm arguing essentially, uh, I I start off with pointing out that recently Secretary Blinken made a statement about Yemen where he acknowledged that the Saudis have put forward um, a ceasefire proposal, which is quite similar to that put forward by U.S. Special Envoy Tim Lender. King and says, essentially, look, we need we need the Houthis to come to the table. The Saudis are ready to negotiate. The U.S. is trying to to work on a ceasefire and the Houthis are are not playing ball. And what I say in the piece is this is essentially dishonest because the terms laid out in both the American and Saudi ceasefire proposals are based on U.N. Security Council Resolution 2216. Um, which essentially would require the Houthis to fully surrender. They would have to give up their weapons, the territory they acquired since 2014. And that is a non-starter for them because when this was passed, when the Security Council passed this resolution in 2015, six years ago, 
at the time, the Houthis had just taken Sana'a, the capital. They were seen as they, they had, in fact, disrupted this democratic transition process that the UN and the GCC had been involved in fostering. And the UN Security Council resolution asked for the assistance of um, neighboring countries in helping to prevent the flow of weapons, uh, the this you know potential smuggling of weapons from Iran to the Houthis, and and at the time this this all was fairly appropriate to the situation where it seemed that the Houthis were not pleased with the outcome of of the National Dialogue Conference, which was had been a two-year process, sort of an effort at transitional justice that the international community had really admired, that that where Yemen was trying to move away from its uh, the, the sort of dictatorial legacy of Ali Abdullah Saleh and move towards a more representative government that would be democratic. Um, and so in general, it's there's nothing that was originally wrong with 2216. Um, it, it was trying to put Yemen back on the path towards a democratic transition. But unfortunately, what we've seen in the interim is conditions have changed significantly. And so at this point, continuing to base ceasefire negotiations on 2216 is essentially preventing peace. It is, it is it, trying to impose maximalist demands on the Houthis to the extent that they have no incentive to come to the negotiating table. In fact, the 2216, in fact, incentivizes them to not negotiate. And so as I argue in the piece, for the US to claim and the Saudis to claim that they are pushing for peace while trying to impose these demands is, as I said, fundamentally dishonest. Whereas if, we, if what they really wanted was to get the Houthis to the negotiating table, they would have to change the terms. They would have to acknowledge that the Houthis do have control of much of the former North Yemen. They, the territory they control is where the majority of Yemenis live. Um, and if they if they really want the Houthis to to negotiate, they're going to have to offer incentives rather than disincentives to get them to the negotiating table. Um, and you know, I there are plenty of Yemenis who pushed back against this peace because they they reject the thought of Houthi control and they don't want. Um, the international community or the UN Security Council to, to sort of give in to the fact that the Houthis have used violence to advance their political agenda. Um, but but which which I do understand. And of course, I I also would, you know, my my personal preference, uh, as as would be the case for for many people, um, would be to if if it were possible for Yemen to return to the democratic transition process that had begun um, following the ouster of, of Ali Abdullah Saleh. But that's just not the reality, unfortunately. And so while as I say in the piece, I don't think that the Security Council resolution should simply give in to the Houthis' demands, but I do think that the Security Council needs to update its resolution such that moving forward, the Saudis can no longer claim that they are pursuing peace when they are in fact continuing to, to blockade Yemen. Um, resolution 2216 uh, actually asks for neighboring countries, as I said, to assist in preventing weapons smuggling, but the Saudis are using this as a justification to prevent fuel in particular from uh, 
coming into Hodeida port because they don't want the Houthis to be able to, to profit from, from having access to the fuel, selling the fuel, taxing the fuel. Um, and so this has led to this massive fuel shortage, which is, has caused life in, in the former North Yemen to, to grind to a halt. of Yemen, but that was never the goal. I mean, they, they control uh, much of the northern part of the country. Uh, they're, you know, kind of stuck on a front line in, in Marib, uh, which, you know, if they take that city, uh, would solidify, would basically consolidate every major population center in, in northern Yemen, along with, um, you know, it's, it's oil fields, it's kind of hydrocarbon wealth. Um, you know, they, they're at a point where um, I think, as you say, the, there, there needs to be a recognition of the reality, which is that they've won and that they need to be treated as the victors in this war and, and accommodated to some degree. Is that, is that sort of the, the, the sense that you have? Yes, yes. And, and as, I, as I try to make clear in the piece, and as you acknowledge, the Houthis haven't won everything. I mean, there are many different militias. Obviously, the separatist groups control much of the former South Yemen, including the Southern Transitional Council. We have Ali Abdullah Saleh's nephew, Tariq Saleh, um, uh, holding control. Interest, he, he's an interesting figure, which we can get into, um, who sort of switched sides a, a few times. But, but right, in general, so the, the Houthis have not seized control of all of Yemen, but they essentially have defeated the Saudis who are supporting the government of President Hadi, who's been in exile in Riyadh since 2015. Um, and so, so uh, just just to clarify the point being there that it's it's the Saudis and the Hadi government who have lost. Mm. Um, and as I as I argue in the piece, part of the reason Yemen has been such an intractable conflict has to do with this influx of foreign money and resources, which are also coming from Iran. Um, you know, the, the Houthis receive have although initially reports of Iranian support for the Houthis um, were fairly overblown. This was sort of, I think, seen as a means of attracting additional attention. Um, this sort of, you know, the plays well into the narrative of Iran as this malign actor. But, you know, be, because the Saudis decided then to intervene militarily, that gave the Iranians a great excuse to provide support for the Houthis um, in, a, in a way that has not been particularly costly for Iran. Um, whereas the Saudis have, have had to spend huge amounts of money on the, the aerial bombardment of Yemen, um, which has completely devastated infrastructure, even, you know, they've targeted farmland and farming facilities and you know, production facilities and port facility and just sort of, you know, hospitals, schools, school buses, just, just the basic building blocks of life in Yemen have, have really been destroyed by the, the very powerful Saudi air bombardment. And so while, you know, the, the Houthis are 
are, you know, engaged in, in truly awful acts as well. This is a war, um, but it's just on a different scale than, than the level of destruction that what the Saudis have, have wreaked upon Yemen. And so because it, the conflict is, is often described as a proxy war, it's this, this opportunity for the Saudis and the Iranians um, to, to fight for influence and previously the UAE had had been a strong coalition partner of the Saudis although we'll get to had, them <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll get to them just just to acknowledge that they you know mostly withdrew at the end of 2019 but they do still hold key infrastructure um they have uh, anyway we as you said we'll we'll go into more of that but just i think it's important to keep in mind that um, the UAE recognized that this was a terrible PR debacle in a way that the Emiratis tend to be very sensitive to their international image. Um, and thus far, unfortunately, uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia seems, um, although we know he would like to improve Saudi Arabia's image, he hasn't been very adept at going about <laughs> No, I would say given, not, yeah. Right, given the various... Uh, horrible decisions and actions he has undertaken. Um, his effort to sort of transform the image of Saudi Arabia uh, is is really not going very smoothly. Um, but in general, the, again, just to get back to the, my, the point I was trying to make has to do with the fact that Yemen was already experiencing a civil war. And if the Saudis pull out, um, and if uh, the, the Iranians would agree to stop supporting the Houthis, there would still be a war in Yemen, but, but it could then be fought among Yemenis. And eventually, you know, civil wars um, tend to go much longer when resources are continually coming in from the outside. Whereas if it's just an internal civil war, those actors eventually don't have the fighters, they don't have the money, uh, they don't have the will to go on uh, forever. And, and so this is part of what I argue, that it's very important to return Yemen to a civil war where Yemenis themselves are, are able to work out what their future is going to look like, as opposed to just being able to continue to, to throw people and, and weapons at each other because they're just being, being pumped with resources from the outside. So this is what I argue about the need for a new UN Security Council resolution because 2216 in fact legitimized the involvement of external actors uh, and again, legitimized the, the, block, the use of blockade tactics. Um, this, this is at the time was perhaps seen as appropriate, but is no longer appropriate. We have the World Food Program uh, um, estimating that 400,000 Yemeni children under the age of five will die this year. That's approximately one every 80 seconds. We're already in June, so likely 200,000 young children. And that doesn't, that's not counting all the other people who have died, but this is just looking at the effects of starvation and, and lack of resources on very young children who tend to be more vulnerable uh, than, than, than adults would be. Um, so it's, it's just, again, just acknowledging the fact that in general, when you see uh, the United States, for example, uh, or Saudi Arabia, or various countries that get involved in these wars, essentially wars of choice. Saudi Arabia did not, in fact, have to invade Yemen in 2015, uh, that they invaded be in part because President Hadi asked them to, to help reinstate him. Um, that 
you what we end up seeing, and especially in the American context, is this unwillingness to accept facts on the ground. We saw this going, you know, for 20 years in Afghanistan, or for not not the entire 20 years, but it, but essentially, you know, once it became clear that the United States was not, in fact, going to be successful in achieving the outcome that was hoped for, which was to install a democratic government in Afghanistan, and and to fully defeat the Taliban. There was an unwillingness to recognize that, and I think we're we're observing that also in Yemen to acknowledge that, yes, we we don't love the Houthis, don't love the fact that this this hoped for democratic transition seems to have gone up in smoke, but rather than than deal with the reality of Houthi control and also the fact that because of foreign involvement, the Houthis actually grow more powerful because one big aspect of their legitimating narrative is that they're defending Yemen. So you have Yemenis who wouldn't necessarily fight on the side of the Houthis otherwise, but they will certainly do so against foreign involvement and against the Saudis. Whereas if we returned Yemen to a domestic conflict, you would have a lot more people who would then say, okay, well now it's time to figure out our internal matters because we're not dealing with a foreign threat. Um, so so just, just to get back to the point about when you have actors like the United States or Saudi Arabia who have the wealth to just continue to, to remain involved in what then becomes an endless war because they're, they're not happy with the facts on the ground and they're not willing to accept reality. And so they just continue to throw money at it and to say that they're doing so for the benefit of the people on the ground. But but nothing, this is ridiculous because the people on the ground are being subjected to daily violence and an inability to, to actually move towards a resolution of the conflict. Um, so, so unfortunately, I, I think we're, we're observing the Saudis sort of following a somewhat similar playbook as the Americans often had in, in, in our, or continue to do in our endless wars abroad. Well, speaking of the Americans, there's sort of a, a, a second layer to this. Uh, you know, the Saudis uh, have been the primary foreign mover, um, Iran, on, on the Houthi side to some extent. But the Saudis, you know, sort of uh, in support or even, you know, kind of taking over uh, from the Hadi government in, in a way, uh, you know, have been the, the main driver here. But their war effort is in turn then, you know, has been supported uh, this entire time by the United States. Um, one of the one of Joe Biden's first major foreign policy announcements, and this was something he talked about during the campaign. He made it, you know, part of his uh, first speech as president at the State Department. There was a lot of ceremony about this. Was that he was ending U.S. support for offensive Saudi military operations in Yemen. Uh, this was back in February, early February. Do you see now, I guess, what were four months later, uh, do you see any change? Because I don't. Do you see any change in, in the way that the United States is operating in Yemen? Yeah, this this was right, right. Biden's big first foreign policy speech on February 4th. He said he was going to end support for offensive military actions as well as relevant arms sales uh, to the Saudis. So, and, and as you say, we, we've, we've had admirable efforts by Congress to follow up on that, to ask for clarification. It's obvious, it's, it is an, an, an acknowledged fact that is difficult to distinguish defensive from offensive weapons because 
it's a weapon. <laughs> you can, you know, Matt depends where you point it. Um, and and in general, yes, we have not, in fact, seen a significant impact. Um, and and part of the way that that has been evaluated is the fact that Saudi actions in Yemen have not, in fact, changed. And we know. Uh, I mean, we, we've seen a slight reduction in airstrikes since that time. Um, and interestingly, the the strikes have sometimes have have seemed to be, in fact, more precise, which is interesting because if the U.S. had, in fact, withdrawn support, the assumption is that the Saudis were relying fairly heavily on, on U.S. assistance to help target strikes. And this had been the justification for U.S. involvement all along was that if the, if the U.S. is involved, we can help Saudi Arabia target their strikes to avoid civilian infrastructure and hopefully limit civilian casualties. And yet we saw the exact opposite of that. And so then there was this question of, well, if this is what Saudi offensives this is the civilian damage caused by Saudi offensives when the U.S. is helping. Well, how horrible would it be? With right, that? yeah, the nightmare scenario, right? Right, and and so and and in general, we know that the the Royal Saudi Air Force is heavily dependent on U.S. contractors for maintenance and support. Uh, Seventy about approximately seventy five percent of the Saudi Air Force is U.S. made. The rest of it is is mostly made by the U.K. And so if American contractors told the Saudis or were told by President Biden to tell the Saudis, we're not helping you anymore, we're not going to provide you with new tires, we're not going to help you get these planes off the ground for any effort having to do with the bombardment of Yemen, the planes would essentially be grounded. Um, and so we, we know that that has not happened. So as you say, it is, the, it is unclear what changed, if anything, after that announcement from President Biden. Um, although, again, as as you said, it was it was exciting when he made that announcement, but unfortunately, it seems that that has not, in fact, been followed up with much policy change, um, which which is quite alarming, given given that he he did come out very admirably and drew attention to this and appointed Tim Lenderking, and at first it seemed. Um, that this this was a, a great reversal from the the sort of blank check that the Trump administration had given the Saudis, um, but now in practice, four months later, we've seen very little change, uh, and it's it's really quite disheartening. You mentioned um, Timothy Lenderking. That was the other part of that this announcement in February was the appointment of Timothy Lenderking as U.S. envoy to Yemen. He was a career is a career diplomat this seemed like a positive step forward in terms of kind of shifting from supporting the saudis to engaging in a peace process uh however um lender king seems to me and i want to i want to you know see if you kind of uh, have have gotten the same impression it seems to me that his main job since he kind of took over his envoy has been doing pr for saudi arabia um you know he's defended the blockade even, you know, absurdly uh, kind of in the face of, uh, you know, CNN report that found uh, exactly what you said earlier, that the Saudis were blocking fuel from getting into northern Yemen, which was in turn creating a, a food crisis because trucks were uh, sort of stranded at Hudaydah port and couldn't get out because they didn't have the gasoline. Uh, you know, Lender King basically denied this in the face of, you know, pretty substantial evidence. Um, and he's he's kind of hewed to the line of 
consistently blaming the conflict on the Houthis and the failure uh, to engage in a peace process uh, or to get a peace process going on the Houthis, you know, kind of again and again and again. And it seems, um, you know, on the one hand, it's it's disappointing because, uh, you, you know, you would hope that uh, a career diplomat would have a little bit, a little better handle on kind of engaging with the Houthis and understanding what their issues and motivations are. Um, and and it, 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 there's sort of, you know, I, it, again, we talked about the assumption, right? You know, I asked you about the assumptions that were baked into the uh, Security Council resolution. There are a lot of assumptions that seem to be baked into the U.S. approach to this conflict. And one of the key ones is that the Houthis are just kind of this agency-less Iranian proxy. And, and you know, they're, they're, there's a, a sense to me that... Uh, they're frustrated because the Houthis aren't playing fair and getting involved, you know, uh, kind of, you know, agreeing to get involved in talks, even though the basis for the talks, you know, the, the has nothing to do with uh, or has made the, the, the U.S. has made no effort to kind of a uh, acknowledge what the Houthis want out of this process and b to acknowledge the fact that the United States is not really a good broker here. I mean, we've spent six years uh, intimately involved in this conflict on the side of the Saudis. And now sort of, we just, we, we seem to expect the Houthis to just kind of turn on a dime and say, Oh, right. The Americans, you're, you guys are, you're cool. We'll, we'll, uh, you know, uh, you're neutral, good faith arbiters. Let's, let's get involved in your peace process. Uh, it's been very frustrating to watch this. And I wonder if you've had the same kind of impression uh, of, of watching Lender King and really the whole administration's kind of approach to, to this uh, conflict. Definitely, it, it has been frustrating. That was a little oh. rant there, sorry. I, I didn't mean to go <laughs> no, on it's, it's warranted. And Lender King is doing his job. He is maintaining the position, which we heard echoed by Blinken, which is that the United States continues to support Saudi Arabia under the auspices of UN Security Council Resolution 2216. And so I, I, don't, I don't think that it's surprising that, that we've seen the statements we have uh, or the positions from, from Lender King and others. Um, but again, it just goes back to this unwillingness to acknowledge the reality on the ground. And here is where I, I do think geopolitical considerations are important to keep in mind. Um, and unfortunately, I think we're just seeing a rerun of what happened in 2015, where at that time, the reason the Obama administration decided to not condemn and in fact support the Saudi military offensive on Yemen, even though they had reservations, knowing the, the you know, the population, you know, Yemen has a, a large and impoverished population. I mean, this, this was always going to be a bloody conflict. Um, but decided to support it because of the ongoing negotiations around the Iran deal and the hope that if the Obama administration didn't condemn the Saudis and offered their support, the Saudis would in turn be less critical of the Iran deal. And that was a poor calculus because the Saudis were in fact quite critical, condemned it up and down, uh, were, were in, you know, in, felt, felt very betrayed by the fact that the Obama administration had negotiated this deal. 
uh, with Iran and the Saudis were not involved. And, and, so, and, and the, what was supposed to be a sort of quick and easy war to oust this ragtag group of Houthi rebels is now in its sixth bloody year. And we're, you know, the, what, ha, what has long been termed by the UN the world's worst humanitarian crisis simply continues to drag on. And I think we're seeing similar considerations now. We know that the Biden administration is trying to negotiate a return to the JCPOA. And we know that the Saudis feel threatened by this. Although luckily, I think this time we've observed the Saudis reaching out to Iran and that that fascinating speech from Mohammed bin Salman about how the Iranians are our neighbors and just adopting a much more tolerant and even conciliatory tone uh, towards towards just the fact that they need to share the region with Iran. Um, this, this is exciting. And, and I think part of why we're seeing diplomacy breaking out not only between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but also other members of the GCC and Iran is because of the, the clear commitment um, by the Biden administration to do the pivot to Asia, uh, you know, to end the war in Afghanistan. Although at present, the U.S. still maintains a robust military footprint in the region, there is an acknowledgement moving forward that the Middle East is simply not as strategically important as it once was. And also that maintaining large uh, numbers of U.S. service members abroad is a somewhat outdated approach to, to uh, sort of use of one's military. Moving forward, we're likely going to see uh, a much bigger investment in the Navy as we're thinking about uh, strategic competition with China and probably a much, much less of a reliance on sort of just stationing tens of thousands of troops in places like Kuwait and Qatar and the UAE. Um, and that moving forward, the, the United States will, of course, continue to, to be involved in the Middle East. I mean, it would take a radical change in US policy uh, <laughs> for, for you know, the, the US to, to um, go, go, you know, to, to adopt a policy of significant retrenchment. Um, but, but I think in general, the part of this comes about as a result of, of previous decisions that we observed by both the Obama and Trump administrations, where, for example, the, the famous red line moment in 2013 when Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his population and, and Obama did not respond with sort of a, a what the international community assumed that he would. And um, also subsequently when we saw uh, in 2019 with the attacks on the Saudi oil facilities um, by either the Iranians or the Houthis, but by uh, just just the, the fact that um, this significantly impacted Saudi Aramco and the Trump administration, again, had, had really no big public response. Um, and uh, based on this kind of behavior from the United States, we've observed now Gulf rulers acknowledging and, and coming to terms with the fact that they do need to take greater control for their own security. And to do that, they, they, they're start, they've decided luckily to ratchet down some tensions that if 
uh, that, that they were willing for the United States to go to war with Iran, but they're not actually willing to take on those costs themselves. And if there's any silver lining of the Saudi military involvement in Yemen, it would hopefully be that Mohammed bin Salman has learned that there's no such thing as, as a quick and painless and cheap war, that war is always horrible and often very, very costly. Um, and it often goes on much longer than its instigators thought that it would. Um, so, so in general, I just back to your original point about Lender King um, and the and the fact that at the moment the Biden administration may have made this calculus that while they're trying to negotiate a return to the JCPOA they don't want to simultaneously exert full pressure on the Saudis about Yemen. Uh, it's just kind of one thing at a time. Let's let's get Iran's nuclear program or potential nuclear program under control and and we'll focus on Yemen once that's wrapped up. But unfortunately, this this logic is operating under the implicit assumption that that it is acceptable for Saudi Arabia to continue to systematically starve Yemen, as as you were mentioning, the the lack of fuel is has has caused life and and food imports and just just you know hospitals generate generators can't run just everything has is grinding to a halt, people are starving, um, and so to to sort of acknowledge that well you know we'll wait for the iran negotiations to pan out or we'll wait for the houthis to to finally concede to our maximalist demands and in the meantime it's fine that yemenis are are starving to death um i i just yeah it's i mean it's particularly it. frustrating to put we put it in those terms which i think is a fair way to put it uh, it's particularly frustrating that they spent two months basically waiting for Iran to knuckle under and come to them uh, you know on the uh, on getting back into the Iran deal and, right. and the assistance the, the insistence that the Iranians had to move first and meanwhile uh, you know there's this knock-on effect of you know that's two more months for for people in Yemen to to starve while we sit and kind of twiddle our thumbs it's it's frustrating yeah. yes yes absolutely absolutely and and I I, I do um I, I want to reiterate the the concerns of, of many of my own friends in Yemen who are subjected to Houthi control. I have friends in Sana'a, I have friends who have fled to Marib, uh, who are, are very concerned about the thought that the, the international community would, would sort of simply allow the Houthis to take over. Um, because that's not what they want. You know, they they supported the notion of a, a transition to democracy in Yemen, and and they they hoped for a government that would at least pay some attention to the needs of its people and and would try to distribute resources uh, more fairly than what occurred under the the Saleh regime. Um, so I I do think it it is very important for the international community and, and in particular the United States uh, and places like the UK and France, uh, all of which have, have profited handsomely from selling weapons to the Saudis and the Emiratis throughout this conflict, that we cannot simply say, well, okay, we'll just let the Houthis take over. I mean, the, the international community does have a responsibility here, um, but, but we also can't just 
sort of accept that the blockade will continue and people will continue to die. I think that the, the new UN Security Council resolution needs to try to help shift uh, conditions in Yemen such that international uh, funding of militias is, is delegitimized as opposed to legitimized as it is under the current resolution or sort of foreign involvement is legitimized. Um, and that, that in general, it should just really try to return control of Yemen to Yemenis and to also help to provide means by which non-armed groups come to the table. Because unfortunately, as often happens in war, the only actors who get a say in in political negotiations are those with the weapons. Uh, So it it helps to incentivize the creation of of new militias because they know that the only way they're going to get a seat at the table is to cause problems and and contribute to violence and to have to be um, sort of appeased. And so, well, again, it's very important that the actual political negotiations over Yemen's future, that's not something the international community has to has to figure out. They just need to help return the conflict to the conditions that allows Yemenis to retake control of what's happening in their country. How optimistic are you about the possibility of a new Security Council resolution? I know you mentioned in the piece, there's obviously the United States has to be convinced uh, the UK uh, probably has to be leaned on as well. Uh, yeah. Do you think this is something that's realistic to realistically going to going to happen soon, or is it uh, you know not not uh, really in the cards yet? Well, as as you mentioned, the UK, as I talk about in the piece, is the pen holder for Yemen, meaning any actions or resolutions related to Yemen have to be initiated by the UK which in itself is somewhat problematic, but this is the system we're working with. However, we know that the UK would very likely listen to the United States if Biden said, look, we we want a new UN Security Council and resolution, United Kingdom, let's go ahead and get that process started. Uh, furthermore, we know that the, the usual spoilers at what what Americans often think of as spoilers in the Security Council, namely Russia and China, would support a new resolution. Russia uh, did not, uh, it it abstained from the vote on 2216. Uh, China has reached out to all sides in the conflict as they tend to do. Uh, And we know that both of them would support this. And if the US were to pressure the UK on this, uh, the UK recently slashed its funding for its aid budgets, uh, and in, including um, for Yemen, um, quite significantly. And so the the British seem to be signaling that they're kind of ready to wash their hands of the, of what's happening in Yemen. Um, France might balk because they profit from selling weapons to the Saudis, but in general, I I. I don't think anyone would really resist if if Biden said, look, we know that this needs to happen. We must shift the conditions of what's happening in Yemen. It's time for the international community to, to update its stance on this conflict and try to actually move towards a resolution. And I think the the although I am not optimistic in general, unfortunately, um, 
I do, given that the Biden administration, that Biden himself came out so publicly and said so explicitly, this war has to end. I, th there is space for pressure here. He, he really came out uh, and, and staked some, some political capital on this. And so we've seen efforts by Congress to push him on this. We saw the recent letter from Elizabeth Warren that got 15 co-signers, uh, all, all Democratic senators, as well as independent Bernie Sanders, um, but no support from Republicans, unfortunately. And this letter was about trying, calling for Biden to use all possible US leverage against the Saudis to pressure them to lift the blockade, not even necessarily to end the aerial bombardment uh, you know, the, at the moment, it, the, the Saudi um, bombers are all that is keeping the Houthis from taking the very strategically important uh, and, and important from a humanitarian perspective, the city of Madib, uh, which, as you mentioned, does have significant fossil fuel resources um, and is also the last stronghold of the Hadi government. Um, so again, it, it wouldn't even necessarily tell the, the Saudis to, to just let the Houthis take Madib. That could be negotiated as a separate thing, but, but it's, it's really unconscionable that the United States continues to allow the Saudis to, to maintain an effective blockade of Yemen. And this, this, is, this is where I think pressure should be applied. You mentioned um, earlier, I mean, you mentioned, you know, over the course of, of this interview, you brought up the Southern Transitional Council and sort of the Southern separatist movement. You mentioned Tariq Saleh uh, and his kind of uh, whatever forces he has with him who were initially kind of fighting uh, alongside the Houthis, but have since sort of gone over to the anti-Houthi. I think I think anti-Houthi makes more sense than pro-Hadi at this point, uh, kind of side of the conflict. Um, there is a tendency, understandably, I think, to, to frame this war as the Houthis versus the Yemeni government or the Houthis versus the Saudis. But there are a number of, uh, you know, potential cracks within the notionally pro-government movement that I've said, I've always said, worst case scenario, you need to end this civil war so that Yemen can get onto the next one, because that, that there are uh, a lot of deep fissures here. Um, if the Houthis were taken out of the equation, if there was a peace uh, agreement reached with the Houthis. Um, what do you see happening with these factions that, uh, you know, again, are sort of notionally pro-government, but Tariq Saleh isn't a supporter of the Hadi government. The Southern separatist movement in general and the STC in, in particular uh, aren't supporters of the Hadi government. They want to, you know, an independent South Yemen again. Um, how, how risky, you know, is the sort of post-war landscape in terms of, uh, you know, some other conflict arising. Yeah, well, as, as I said, the, the getting foreign actors out will not resolve what's happening in Yemen, but it would help get Yemen to a place where these internal conflicts could be resolved. Whereas as long as these various militias are receiving outside support, the conflict is, is likely to continue indefinitely. Um, and 
in general, we, you know, Yemen, under, under Ali Abdullah Saleh, Yemen experienced it an unprecedented level of centralization as he sought to consolidate natural resources under his control and to use those to keep himself in power. He distributed patronage to those who were loyal to him, um, really emphasized the security forces. Uh, and, and so even after he was ousted, many, you know, much of the military remained loyal to him, which was then what he was able to bring as, as sort of a, a incentives to get the Houthis to ally with him was because he brought a big chunk of the Yemeni military, uh, which really then bolstered Houthi strength. And then later when he tried to betray the Houthis, they killed him. Um, and so what the National Dialogue Conference had decided was to move away from what Saleh had done with this centralization of resources, which had left so, so many Yemenis marginalized and impoverished, including the Houthis uh, and the, the residents of Saada, where northern Yemen, where the Houthis are from. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So moving, moving towards a federal system was part of what was agreed to that in the future, there was going to be much more autonomy for these various regions, um, especially places like like the South that historic that since um, reunification in 1990 and and then the, the their the South's effort to secede in 1994 when it, it turned out that the life under a unified Yemen wasn't actually working out all that well. And they decided we want to go back to being independent and Saleh used his control of the military and the larger population to force the South uh, to remain part of a unified Yemen. Um, so in general, many Yemenis acknowledged the need for greater autonomy. Um, unfortunately, what you know, part of why the Houthis decided to to pursue violence as opposed to sort of going along with this transition process was because they feared the outcome of a federal system because Sada is landlocked, has very few natural resources, and they didn't want to be sort of relegated to to ongoing sort of impoverishment and marginalization, and so they they wanted a, a system that would help them. Um, and part of this goes back to the fact that historically in northern Yemen, the it, it was ruled by Zaidi Shia Imam. And uh, the Houthis themselves are, are claim or the, the family claims descent from the Prophet Muhammad. And under the previous ruling system under the Imamate, those who claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad had the right to rule, essentially. And so the Houthis would like to return to a system where these, the, the Sa'ada, the, the Sayyids, the, these descendants of the Prophet, they're the ones in charge. Um, and so this is part, I think, of why we see so much resistance from other Yemenis. It's not only that there's some, that the Houthis are, are just a, a random group of rebels, but that they do represent this return to an earlier and what many see as an antiquated system where the right to rule is, is based on this claim of dissent. Um, and, and so moving forward for many Yemenis, they, they, they do want to see a system of greater autonomy, of, of federalization, of um, hopefully some kind of representative government and democracy. 
Um, and part of why the Houthis are so threatening is because, you know, there, there were people other, not only the Houthis, but other people who benefited under that previous system who would also like to return to that. And so it really is kind of these, these separate visions for what the future of Yemen is going to be. Um, but to get to your question of, are, are we just going to fall from the frying pan into the fire? I, I don't think so, because I, I think if, if, again, just, just the point about, the involvement of foreign actors in civil wars that tends to prolong them as opposed to when you just get back to sort of the local actors who are, are dealing with local issues and, and, and kind of local levels of resources, eventually it's just not worth it to keep fighting and, and it's just, you know, that just becomes too costly. Um, whereas again, if, if you're just getting this flow of resources, you know, cost is less of a calculation for you. One of those foreign actors, and I guess, well, there's a couple of them we, we need to, to talk about here, but um, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the UAE uh, kind of dived for the exit, <laughs> kind of decided that, uh, that this war was not good for them uh, in terms of national image uh, and, and kind of tried to phase out their involvement. Um, there is still uh, substantial support, it seems like, from the UAE for the Southern Transitional Council, um, you know, for, for political reasons, certainly. Uh, um, and, you know, even as they've kind of exited the active part of the conflict, uh, the UAE seems to be exerting uh, a considerable amount of uh, control over the island of Socotra in the, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, Arabian Sea, which is a, you know, strategically located and kind of a, uh, could be a tourist destination, could be good for a naval base, that that sort of thing. Uh, just recently, there have been reports that, that the Emiratis probably, uh, it's not entirely clear, but probably the Emiratis are building uh, some kind of a base on Mayun Island, which is also very strategically located, uh, part of Yemen, part of Aden province, uh, but is very strategically located on the on the uh, sort of uh, choke point into the Red Sea um, and the southern choke point into the Red Sea, um, that they may be building a helicopter facility or some other kind of uh, base that would give them, uh, again, sort of a, a, an ability to project militarily into a, an important part of the region. Um, the Saudis are not immune to sort of pursuing some side interests in Yemen. There's, uh, for a couple of years now, there have been uh, reports that they are trying to build an oil port uh, in uh, Al-Mahra province, uh, much to the chagrin of, of the people actually living there. Um, but that, that would allow them to sort of bypass the choke points in the Persian Gulf, which are, you know, potentially could be blocked off by the Iranians if there was a conflict and, and sort of get their oil out to a, to a more reliable uh, destination. Um, talk a little bit about some of the these things that are going on where, where you have these Gulf powers kind of carving off little pieces of Yemen for themselves and and what that um, how that kind of feeds into the war and 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 makes it more complicated or or uh, you know kind of kind of affects the the calculus here. Definitely, yeah. Well, and and this is, I think, part of what is so 
maddening about it is that we see these Gulf powers using the war as sort of a cover for them to pursue what it is that they actually want. So right, exactly prior to the war, we know that Saudi Arabia had hoped to build a pipeline from the, the Sharqiya region through Mahra, the, the easternmost province of Yemen that, that shares a long border with Oman, um, to get their oil straight out and not have to worry about um, dealing much of Saudi oil comes from the eastern province, so has to go through the Strait of Hormuz. Um, but in general, the notion, and this, this is kind of a broader issue with sort of geostrategic thinking about oil, um, it, it would make no sense for Iran to try to shut down the Strait of Hormuz because Iran is very dependent on oil exports itself. And so it would be cutting off its nose to spite its face. Um, and so, you know, in, in general, the, the notion that there's this threat that the Persian Gulf countries might not be able to get their oil out and this would be devastating for the global economy. It, it's based, it, there's again, this, as you've mentioned, this sort of flawed baked in assumption that Iran would ever have an incentive to do that, which again, would, would just be devastating for the Iranian economy. Furthermore, the Strait of Hormuz, although it is small, it's not that small and it would be hugely difficult for Iran to to keep it closed for, for more than a, a br very brief period of time, a matter of days. Uh, the Quincy Institute is, is coming out with a report fairly soon that sort of gets into what it, that would actually require for Iran to, to shut down the strait if that were ever something they actually wanted to do, which again would be counterproductive for their own economic purposes. So, so all that to say that, that Saudi anxiety about wanting a pipeline in order to avoid the Strait of Hormuz, in my assessment, is less about the concerns about losing the Strait and more just about feeling, you know, having this notion that they could essentially do whatever they want in Yemen and being able to to just dig through Mahra province, you know, that it's sort of their right because they're more powerful and they're much wealthier and Yemen really should should just let them do this. Um, and so, yes, we've seen the Saudis maintaining uh, a significant pr um, presence in Mahra, um, also much to the consternation of the Omanis who historically have maintained a fairly close connection uh, to, to the inhabitants of Mahra. Historically, the Mahra province and the, the southernmost province of Oman, the, the Dofar, uh, share, share inhabitants. They're, you know, the border is fairly porous, um, shared languages there. The Jabali language, for example, uh, still there, sort of a South Arabian language. Um, and, and so it's not only Yemenis who are frustrated about the Saudis just coming in and taking over key airports and, and seaports and basic infrastructure in Mahara, but also the Omanis who have, have invested in, in sort of their relationships with the people of Mahara and don't appreciate the Saudis just sort of treating it as if it's their own backyard and they can just build a pipeline. Furthermore, I'm not a geologist and so I haven't verified this, but I've heard that the 
the geology or geography or terrain of Mahra is actually not very conducive to, to just building a pipeline right through it. I mean, it's a mountainous area for parts. Um, and, and so it's, I, I, again, I think it's, it's been, like I said, it's, I, I think that the Saudi claim that they have to have this pipeline is more just about wanting to expand their, their influence and their presence and, and that thus far, neither Oman nor Yemen has been able to prevent them from doing that. Um, but again, it's it's just partly frustrating because the Houthis have no presence in Mahra. So the Saudis claiming that they have to be involved in Yemen because the Houthis pose such a threat because they are supported by Iran, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, but the Houthis aren't in Mahra. So why are you guys in Mahra? <laughs> Well, you know, they could be. You never know. You, you have to get ahead of these things. Um, and then, you know, to your point also about the, the Emirati presence, as, as we had mentioned earlier, and right as you said, both both the um, island of Socotra and the very strategic island of Mayun, which does sit at right in the middle of the Bab al-Mendab, which is, in fact, a much smaller um, sort of waterway where, you know, it it. it it's it's not the Emiratis tend to be very clever and hold you know maintaining control of Mayun Island is certainly a strategically desirable position to have. But again, right? You could I mean much more than the the Strait of Hormuz. You could actually choke off. You could the, the Babel Mendeb and, and block traffic into the Red Sea. That's the, yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a more manageable kind of channel. Yes. And this yes. is one of the I mean, this is one of the arguments that the Saudis make about the Houthis, that they could block Red Sea. Show. I mean, there's no there's no evidence that they actually could have the capability to do this. But uh, this is one of the like, you know, kind of uh, maximalist panic threats that, that that gets made is we have to, you know, defeat these guys because they could block up, the, the, you know, this hugely, you know, important and, and well used uh, shipping lane. Right. Right. And. I mean, again, in general, it's it, it, as as happens in many conflicts. Sort of the the more powerful actor fixates on the threats posed by the much less powerful actor, <laughs> and and doesn't seem to keep in mind um, sort of the proportionality of <clears throat> what what <laughs> who's actually threatening whom here. <laughs> Um, but yes, so we we know that the Emiratis have maintained control of strategic locations, you know, building uh, what, what looks like a military airport on Mayun, maintaining control of the 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 port, the airport in the Al Rayyan airport in Mukalla in the Hadramaut, as well as um, additional key infrastructure, and with the Emiratis, essentially. What it looks like they're doing is they are generally supporting the Southerners, the, the Southern secessionists, especially the Southern Transitional Council, as well as others, in and most likely in hopes of having a future South and a future independent South Yemen, or perhaps just a future autonomous South Yemen, as essentially a client state that the Emirates could then use for their own advantage, that they wouldn't necessarily try to seize full control over as Emirati territory, but that these actors would owe their, their 
either independence or autonomy to Emirati help and so would be indebted to them and they could use them as, as sort of clients and would not resist Emirati military presence. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's probably a more clever calculation than the sort of aerial bombardment that the Saudis are doing. I mean, you know, you, I've heard plenty of analyses that the Saudis could have approached this much more like the Emiratis, where you're kind of buying off the actors that that you need to buy off. You know, you, you use your superior wealth to produce outcomes that they wanted to see. And what's interesting is we'd seen Saudi Arabia do this for years in Yemen. We had seen the Saudis pay off various tribes and various groups and keep Yemen divided and weak. And this is part of why we have such Yemeni resentment against Saudi interference. But there's this long institutional memory in Saudi Arabia of how to handle Yemen. And yet instead, when we saw Mohammed bin Salman at the time of the, the beginning of Operation Decisive Storm, he was defense minister, he wasn't yet crown prince. He sort of throws all of that out the window and says, I'm going to invade or, or not in fact invade. It was, I'm going to launch this military intervention, which has been mostly aerial. Um, and you, history books show it, it doesn't go well for actors that try to invade Yemen. I mean, Egypt could have told him this. <laughs> you know, the, the Egyptian defeat by Israel in the 67 war was largely due to the fact that most of the Egyptian military was bogged down fighting in Yemen at the time. Um, I mean, there may be Israeli military scholars that would say, well, no, Israel could have defeated Egypt even if their whole military had been fighting. But the point <laughs> is that, that Egypt was distracted and um, had heavily committed to, to fighting on behalf of, of the Republican government that had overthrown the imamate uh, in, in 1962 in Northern Yemen. Um, so it, it just the fact that we had Mohammed bin Salman throwing out the sort of Yemen playbook that the Saudis had used quite effectively to keep Yemen weak and divided and relatively poor, and instead has now spent hundreds of billions of dollars on a failed war. It, you know, it just speaks to the fact that Mohammed bin Salman wasn't listening to sort of wiser, older anybody, <laughs> right? Any well, I mean, probably listening Except, to, to those, yeah, his his friend and right, his Abu buddies Dhabi. who were like, "Oh yeah, this is going to look great for you. This is going to be great on your resume, you know, for trying to become crown prince." Um, and it's and again, as I said earlier, my my hope is that he may have learned a lesson here um, that it's these kinds of wars are just bad news for everyone, you know, devastating from a humanitarian perspective, obviously, but also thinking about, you know, it doesn't do Saudi Arabia any good to have Yemen as a completely failed state, just, you know, they, they share a long border. And Yemen was already a fragile and, you know, classified as essentially a failing state before the war. And just the amount of devastation that has occurred is, I mean, it's just, it's shocking that the international community continues to just allow this to happen. Um, I want to I move a little bit away from Yemen and with the, the few minutes we have left to uh, talk about 
a country that doesn't get uh, much attention. And so I, I, I get asked often by people what's going on there. Uh, and I always have a great answer, but I think you will. Uh, Oman. Uh, the Omanis are involved, certainly in Yemen. There was an Omani delegation that just, you know, was in Sena'a uh, this week to to meet with the Houthi kind of high military council to try and urge them to get on board with a ceasefire. Um, but more, you know, you know, kind of more urgently, I guess, in the news uh, recently has been uh, some protests. Uh, over high unemployment, economic weakness. This is Oman's sort of uh, burden at this point is is an economy that really is going nowhere. Uh, um, and and Sultan Haitham, who's still fairly new, he still has the new that new Sultan smell. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of uh, you know he hasn't had a lot of time to kind of get settled in, um, but just kind of if you could in in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Just for all the people who are constantly asking me what's going on in Oman, uh, what is going on in Oman? What are the, you know, what's sort of uh, happening with with Sultan Haitham and and the, uh, you know, tensions over the economy and and um, you know where where people are at. Yeah, it's it's it has been interesting to see protests in in Oman, and I I had tweeted about this. Um, the sort of use of, of force by Saudi police and had some Omanis tweeting back at me, but but also the police were giving the protesters water. And, you know, so there there is in general, um, it, it can be hard, you know, Oman is a deeply authoritarian state. And so it, it, there's not, um, and especially under the previous Sultan Qaboos, who had been in charge since 1970, who was seen as, as the father of modern Oman, who had used oil resources to really bring Oman out of abject poverty into a, a you know a, a high, relatively high level of development and um, investments in in the people, um, and so there was many, many Omanis who felt quite loyal to Sultan Qaboos, even though he, Oman does not have the level of oil resources that it's, that the other GCC countries do, especially given that Oman has a much larger population. Um, and it's just a, it's a larger country than sort of the small GCC, um, you know, the UAE and Qatar and Kuwait, for example, where, where there really is an abundance of oil resources and not that many people. Whereas in Oman, there's just not that much oil and many more people. And so in general, Oman has been the country that has kind of um, had to deal with a lot of these questions first in terms of what do we do when the oil runs out? How do we employ our population when we can't just use the, the rentier state system where the the state just is able to pull money out of the ground essentially and use that to employ its population in the public sector. And, um, and, and again, in Oman, because Omanis have, have in fact, have not sort of led the life of, of decadence that we tend to associate with the Gulf of places like um, the, the UAE, for example, um, you have Omanis that, that that work that are accustomed to to sort of 
not just sitting at a desk and letting somebody else do their jobs. So again, it's it's not the the level of a transition that we see currently Mohammed bin Salman trying to implement in Saudi Arabia, for example, where you did have generations of Saudis who were used to, you know, the, the men were earning enough at these public sector jobs to, to cover the living expenses of their female relatives who were not allowed to work. So they had to be paid significantly more um, in Saudi Arabia. And we see Mohammed bin Salman implementing or trying to implement a massive sort of social transformation there where Saudis are working and Saudi women are working. Um, so again, in Oman, it's not as heavy of a lift, but they also just have so many fewer resources to try to do it. And so unfortunately, in, in the final years of Sultan Qaboos's life, his health was quite poor. And the, the nest egg that the Omani government had sort of set aside to try to finance this economic transition away from oil and towards a more worker sort of, you know, an, an economy that actually employed the Omani people. Much of that had to be spent during the Arab Spring in 2011 when Omanis were out in the streets demanding employment and the, the government responded because it was in this, this uh, you know, <laughs> governments were, found, were falling around the region and, and the situation was quite dire. Um, and they knew they had to act quickly. And so they, they essentially were just hiring Omanis to work in the public sector. I, I heard stories about you know, three people crammed to one desk in a government office just so they could have a job and a paycheck and, and would keep them happy. Um, and since 2014, oil prices have been quite low. And so the Omani government has not been able to build back up the the resources required to sort of finance this transition and so Sultan Haitham when he took over at the beginning of 2020 after Sultan Qaboos did finally pass away inherited a financial mess where there's just there's not the money there to finance this transition um, he has implemented changes they one of his early decisions was to significantly cut the expenditures of the royal court which was a sort of, you know, trying to show the Omanis, look, you know, I'm, I myself, I'm also going to operate under this austerity. Right, a little populism, yeah. <laughs> right, which I think was probably very smart on his part. Um, but he's also implemented less popular initiatives, things like uh, introducing a value-added tax. Um, also, it has not yet happened, but the uh, talk of introducing the Gulf's first income tax um, and, and just to really shift the, the social bargain away from the state pulls money out of the ground and the state then uses that money to pay the citizens. And in exchange, the citizens don't ask for political representation because they're not taxed. Whereas when you have to tax your citizens, usually they start making demands for political representation. And so Oman may be the first Gulf country that we see essentially being forced to adopt a, a system of government that has to be more responsive to the people may not look like full democracy, but but again, in general, you don't tend to, to get away with taxation unless you also provide some representation. So the recent protests are just the latest symptom of the fact that Oman, Oman's economy is not working for the Omanis, that there, there are not enough public sector jobs, there's not been sufficient investment in, in trying to, to transition Oman um, towards perhaps a more 
you know, Oman would have huge tourism potential, for example. So there's been a lot of talk about trying to expand that. Um, and, you know, kind of similar to the Saudi Vision 2030, there have been multiple sort of vision, you know, they bring in, um, con you know, these, these companies to, to envision Oman, Oman's economic transition. And then it just doesn't tend to happen because it's going to be unpopular and you're going to have to start taxing people. And then the political <laughs> system is going to have to change. And so up to this point, the the sultan and, and sort of the ruler, the ruling class of Oman has not been willing to let go of power. And so it just comes down to this question of, okay, so are we going to do this gradually or are we going to do this all at once? And Oman is, is going to likely fall apart if, you know, it gets to a point where there's sufficient unrest and the government right. is overthrown. And, and my, my, my extreme hope for Oman and for other countries uh, faced with these circumstances is to adopt the necessary political reforms that do start to, to provide representation, to give Omanis more control over their government. So then Omanis can, can help direct the, the the economic changes that need to be made um, to in order to to sort of provide a viable economy and, and sufficient employment for the Omani people. It is a sort of catch twenty two where they you know they don't have the oil wealth so they don't have the kind of economy that requires as heavy a, a transition, but they also don't have the resources or the reserves to kind of buy people's compliance with the transition. Right? I mean the Saudis have a lot of money that they can still throw around as they're sort of trying to transition out of an oil-based economy and, and kind of make people happy uh, or, or try to buy people's happiness during the transition. Uh, yes, you, or, you talk or about, them. I mean, at the moment, the Saudis have just been doing a lot of repression. Right. Yeah. They, they can do a lot of that too. Yes, certainly. <laughs> certainly that's a part of it. Um, you mentioned the, the, political, you know, adopting a, a political transition. Haitham has done a little bit of this in terms of kind of decentralizing power. I mean, one of the, the curious things about Qaboos was he was not only Sultan, he was his own prime minister, he was his own defense minister, foreign minister, finance minister, like he held all these major cabinet ministries himself personally. Uh, and Haitham has at least uh, moved to kind of uh, appoint people into those jobs and, and, and you know, not kind of uh, hold all, uh, as much power in his own person uh, as Qaboos had. But do you, do you, uh, you know, is that, could that be the first step in the, the kind of transition that you're talking about? Or, or you know, are we still, uh, is it still going to be pulling teeth to kind of uh, uh, really expand the, the base of, uh, you know, who has a say in, in Omani politics. It, it's definitely a start. And we, uh, Sultan Qaboos overthrew his own father and didn't have any children. And, you know, when we, the, the assumption was that he was worried about the possibility of being himself overthrown. So he did not designate a public successor, um, which, you know, luckily the transition went smoothly, but there was this concern that maybe it wouldn't have gone smoothly. You might have had sort of contention within the, the royal family and, you know, it, it, it could have gone very poorly. And alhamdulillah, it, it did in fact go smoothly and, and Haitham has taken over and, and seems to be um, 
yes, taking some important actions to decentralize power. And I think probably has a, a somewhat more long-term view. I mean, he, he has children. He has not designated a successor either, um, but it, it, is, it would not be surprising that he would designate a son to follow him. And so knowing that he can hand something off in the future to his son um, and could perhaps prepare his son to, to take control perhaps gives him a little bit of, of like a longer shadow of the future and, and allows him to make decisions about um, what it will take for, for the future of Oman. Whereas, whereas Kabul is just given his own personal experience of overthrowing his father and, and um, knowing that that could happen to him as well, I think was just unwilling to, to decentralize in any way or to in any you know signal who might come after him. Um, so in general, I, I think it's, it, it is very lucky that thus far um, we've, Oman has managed to remain fairly stable, you know, these recent protests notwithstanding. Um, and, and again, my, my hope is that Haitham will continue along this path of um, trying to shift Oman in this direction. To your question of, well, are we actually going to see some kind of actual reform, actual democratic reforms where we see um, perhaps the people of Oman being able to have greater say over their own government? That, that's a big if. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> that may take a little while. That may, that may take a little while. And, and again, I, I, in general, I think, you know, those of us who are privileged to, to grow up in contexts where the notion of, of representative government seems like a foregone conclusion for us, just remember how, what a long process it took for Europe to, to sort of slowly democratize as, as power was sort of dragged out of the hands of monarchs, you know, in the United States, that um, the United States was not in fact a, an actual representative democracy for much of our history. Um, so and we may not be one again. And so, yeah, at the knows. moment, it's still up in the air. Um, but but just in general, I you know the and I'm I'm saying this in the context of having observed actions by the United States to try to quote impose democracy on other countries, and clearly that did not go well. You know, it's, it's really something that cannot be imposed. And 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 this emphasis on well you just just have elections and voila you have democracy and and the point is actually it is often this long slow process by which political systems are reformed and as frustrating as that may be for people who envision you know a, a wonderful utopia where we can just you know have have these these fundamental social and political transitions that could just happen and wouldn't that be great and the point is history does, it, it just doesn't work that way. If you like a rapid transition usually results in authoritarianism, you know, military takeover, violence. And, and that's just how history tends to go. And, and so it, it can be frustrating for those of us who, who have more, more sort of um, fonder ideological hopes um, for, for some of these places. But, but again, it's, it's just history shows that this is a long, slow process. I think that's a good place to to 
end it uh, in the interview uh, with the long view of history. Uh, so uh, thank you again, Anel Shilan, for coming on the program and, uh, uh, you know, giving us a, 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 an informed take on where the Yemen peace process, the Yemeni peace process should go and a little bit of an update on Oman and, and how things are going there. Uh, it's always great to have you and I hope we can uh, do it again soon. Yes, thank you so much for having me and, and for drawing attention to especially what's happening in Yemen. All right, that does it for us this week. Uh, once again, I want to thank Anel Shiline, Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute, uh, for coming on the program. Uh, her piece, Washington Has Got Yemen Policy Backwards, is available right now at foreignpolicy.com. I will have the link uh, in the show description. Definitely check that out. And uh, you can find her on Twitter as well. Uh, she's really she's really a good follow. She's one of the, the top, in my opinion, experts in uh you know, kind of studying the Arab world and understanding some of the trends that are going on really all over uh, the Arab world, as, as I think uh, you can tell. She's uh, been on here to talk about Jordan, Yemen, the UAE, Oman. She's really got a lot of kind of broad expertise in that area. So I'm always happy to have her on. And I'm always very happy to have you come and listen to this podcast. So uh, as ever, thanks for doing that. And until next time, take care. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.